Hey, 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 welcome back to Truth Be Told. I'm Tanya Mosley. Are y'all ready for part two of our live conversation in Pasadena, California at the LAist Crawford Theater? Well, buckle up. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, I highly suggest you go back and check it out. Let's get into it. My last conversation is with Casey Gerald, who is the author of There Will Be No Miracles Here. Casey was a wise one for season one of Truth Be Told Family Ties. When we last spoke two years ago, Casey had just written a piece for New York Magazine called The Black Art of Escape. We kicked off our conversation about the article and divesting from respectability politics and notions of black excellence. I hope you enjoy. All right. This next guest, our next guest is, I don't even know if I even told him this before, but I like see him as like a brother. I just have such a deep soul connection to Casey Gerald. Come on out, Casey. Hey, y'all. How you doing? I took my notes. I stood in the back. I said, y'all got some good stuff. Casey, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Casey was a part of my very first season of Truth Be Told. We like rushed your L.A. apartment. You were living in L.A. at the time. And one of the messages that you were giving back then that you would later write a very profound piece on was the black art of escape. Essentially, you say we've deployed a lot of strategies for survival in this country. I'm going to use your words, John Henryism, where we feel like we can work our way out of it, protest and rebellion. And then there is the black art of escape. Can you explain it? No. <laughs> I don't mean that as I, I won't explain it, but I can't explain it. And in part because I don't really give messages. It's, I don't really see that as my job. I try to figure out what it is I need to know for myself. And I try to find a pleasurable way to make that accessible for someone else. That's right. To receive. Yeah. But I have no investment whatsoever in them receiving it <laughs> anymore. I used to. And so The Black Art of Escape, first of all, is a title of an essay I wrote in 2019 in Los Angeles. Once I finally let go of that man and had some free time <laughs> to do my work. Yeah. But the title is stolen, actually, from Invisible Man. Uh, there's a section in Invisible Man where Ellison says he was, he was well-schooled in the black art of escape. Mm. And that was only the title because they wouldn't publish my original title, which was Every, nigger got, every Nigger's Got a Kingdom in His Head, right. <laughs> yes. which was also stolen. Yes. But from, from The Color Purple. Yes. There's a great moment in The Color Purple where Celia and Mr. They have reconciled as so far as they can and, uh, and Celia's telling Mr. about the Olinka people from Africa mm -hmm. and how they would get in trouble with the colonizer because the Olinka people wanted to do their own thing right. and they would be punished severely for doing so. And uh, Mr. couldn't imagine any black people anywhere in the world living in such a reckless fashion. 
And he said, well, Celia, you know, every nigga got a kingdom in his head. Yes, yes, yeah. (laughs) And isn't it true? And thank God it is. I felt it very important as we reach this 400-year milestone for us to think about the same question that we've always been thinking about, which is how can we live in a land that's made to kill us? It's a very juicy dilemma. Hmm. And we've tried so many strategies, many of which you articulate. But what I started to find out was that there were some strategies that we've tried that have been very peculiarly hidden from us. Mm-hmm. One of which being the strategy of flight, mm-hmm. which Virginia Hamilton talks about in The People Could Fly, which Toni Morrison talks about in Song of Solomon, when Milkman says, he says, Guitar says to Milkman, he says, if you want to fly, you got to let go of all that shit that's swaying you down. Mm-hmm. So what I found, having been raised in Dallas, Texas, by black people in an, a severely segregated space, thank God it was, what I found was that there were parts of our history that had been kept from us that we needed urgently to recover yeah. at such a time as this so that we wouldn't keep beating our heads against the wall trying to convince a country to accept us or to see us or to like us or a country or a man or a job or whomever it may be, that we can stand in wherever we are in the context of impossibility and know that our lives are at the soul level. Our lives are inevitable regardless of whatever material impossibility we might encounter in day to day. So that's what, you know, the essay was about. But then you get to the part of dealing with a completely morally bankrupt and unimaginative publishing industry and nobody wanted to publish it. Mm-hmm. Right. You gets, were yeah. you were talking about you're just going to publish it like where? Like you got the New Yorker to publish it. Well, I got New York Magazine to publish it and pay me a few pennies for it. And that was fine. Because after I'd gotten six or seven rejections from folks, I didn't worry at all. I prayed and I cried a little bit. I will confess to that. But I prayed and I came off real clear that I would just post it on Tumblr. Because, again, my job is not to give anybody anything. It's not to force anybody to have anything. It's to try to be available. Lucille Clifton once said, these poems wanted to be written and I was available. Mm-hmm. My, all my job is on a daily basis is to be available. And if I'm available and I receive it and I try to put it down as truthfully and beautifully as possible, whoever needs to get it will get it, even if it's a thousand years from now. That's not my concern, but I was happy to put it on Tumblr. I was happier that they published it. Right, right. Of course. <laughs> you know, to be clear. But, you know, I talk cash, cash money shit, you know, until, right. until things hit the fan. The thing is, you wrote it and you were you were a lot of places talking about it. And then you you basically disappeared. Where did you go? I haven't even seen you since then. It was it, it's like you even disappeared on on social, you disappeared. You escaped, I felt like. Well, you look great now that we see each other again and hopefully I haven't aged too poorly. You look the same uh, exactly. You know, <laughs> I've never disappeared to myself. Yeah. So I don't, I have not registered my life as an, as a disappearance. I've registered my life as a profound and, and delicious homecoming. This is what I write. This is exactly it. Because you wrote this profound piece, The Black Art of Escape, 
which basically is like, right, every, every, I can't say it. Okay. I'm a public radio That's right. host That's right. now, That's right. so I'm not going to say it on here, yeah. but every inn has a kingdom in his own head. Yes. This, this is at the root of the black art of escape. And so you decided that you, after being everywhere, you, you were going to come back to your home, which is in you. Well, I mean, I've done many things aside from that, you know, I, I did. I loved the conversation about psychedelics. I went out to the desert in far west Texas and, you know, and did that. So I've done many things. I've, you know, I've written, How I've tried this? to love, I've tried to, I've tried to be a good brother to my sister. I've tried to be a good uncle. I've done a great number of things. I did, you know, I became a writer to save my life. I had lived America from the very bottom to the very top. You know, I was born, you know, my mother suffered from mental illness, disappeared when I was 13. My father struggled with drug addiction, was gone when I was very young. You know, I grew up this poor, queer, damn near orphan in a forgotten world of Oak Cliff, Texas. And somehow out of that forgotten world, somebody came and pulled me out and sent me to Yale and to play football and then to to Harvard Business School and did all these things. And they told me, hey, you've made it. And I was really cracked up. (laughs) So I didn't know that that's what making it was going to be. And so I had lived myself into a dead end around 29. Okay. And I became a writer just to try to write myself out. Yeah. So what I've been interested in is a body of work that is far more difficult, I have found, than any of the things they told me I was supposed to strive to do at Yale or Harvard Business School. It's a very difficult thing to love somebody, in my experience. It's a very difficult thing to sit and try to forgive your mother and your father. It's a very difficult thing. My sister, who's supposed to be my big sister, which means if I'm the baby, I don't have to do anything. So then, you know, it's a very difficult thing to get. And we're now in our 30s and she's in her early 40s. And I am in a moment of intense work, but also my sister needs me. And so that is, that's what I've been doing. I've been trying to live a life that I will be proud of. And I also have been trying to live the life that my soul came into this lifetime to live, Mm. not the life that some fool at Yale said was, you know, successful. Thing about that message is like that is the same message you were giving. You were giving us, but so many of us couldn't hear it. And I, I really do think that it was also the time period we were in. So I, if we just put ourselves back in that time of 2019, a year later, then George Floyd would be murdered. And I think that the quietness of the pandemic allowed us to hear ourselves, it allowed us to be able to actually sit within and hear those messages that we hadn't heard or we we were running for so long and in this world of this John Henryism for so long we weren't able to really hear those messages so like we're 2023 and I'm hearing you and I'm like oh I'm now where you were in 2019 but it's all good yes there's no rush for anything you know, we all are, and this is why I swear by psychedelics, I would hope you would do it in in my brother's very directed and intentional way and not, you know, my yes. way out in the West Texas desert. But, <laughs> you know, do it. Hey. Well, well, do it when you can, because the broader perspective is so important at this time. If all you feel is true is what you see and what you hear and what they've told you is the world, 
then you're missing a whole hell of a lot of stuff. And you're also going to be very stressed out. And so when I say it's all good, I mean it's all good. If you don't get the lesson this lifetime, there are many other lifetimes you can get it. It's fine. You get it when you need it. You get it when you're ready. I see my sister with the head wrap. I've been spending time the past few months with with Erica Badu. And, you know, she talks about writing Baduism in 1997, 96, 95, and writing it for her child and writing it for her child's peers. And, uh, you know, the, the job of that a person like that or those of us who consider ourselves vessels is, again, be available. Put the thing on the record. Put it on the page. Put it whatever. And put the little stone down on the trail. Put the little breadcrumb down on the trail. And whenever that person who's lost on that path passes it and looks down and finds it, that's good. That's Mm. great. (laughs) And if they don't get it, the birds will get it. If the birds don't get it, it'll decay. Right. It's not that big a deal. Right, it's right. all fine. You know, it's all good. It's all good. And I'm sober completely. <laughs> and I know it because I'm looking at you. Right. I'm looking right at <laughs> your eyes. My eyes are clear. Your yeah. eyes are I'm clear. I'm tired, but I'm sober. But you're sober. You know, one thing I've heard you say many times is that you don't believe that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams, but you believe that we're their greatest hope. I just, I find that so powerful because I always also felt like that other thing was also so powerful. Hmm. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I'll tell you a story that happened recently here in Los Angeles. And I apologize in advance for getting emotional because it's something I have not talked about publicly. But I started earlier this year a set of series of sessions with a hypnotherapist here in Los Angeles, Akiko. And part of what we do together is a sort of past life regression analysis, and we do ancestral work. And our first session, you know, you do a few cycles over the course of a few hours. And our first session, she led me through sort of a moment where, and I'm aware, I don't know if anyone here has done hypnosis, but you know, you're aware. It's not like in the movies where you're a zombie, you know, it's like, you know, you are, you know, what, what's going on, even though you're aware that there are other things happening in and through you. And so, you know, there came a point in our session where she helped me envision a tree and the tree had these extraordinary roots And around the roots and around the tree were so many of my ancestors Mm. who I didn't know, okay? And almost suddenly, I can't even describe it, almost suddenly I was in a very dark room and it was a bit like a shack and there was a woman who I knew immediately was a woman that I had first written about in The Black Art of Escape, who was my grandmother, grandfather's great-grandmother, Amanda Oliver. You just Oliver. knew it, right. Yes. I just knew it yep. because I kept getting these hits from Ancestry.com. We yeah. have a new, we have a new, and, and, and it turned out that three or four years later, Ancestry.com had found some marriage record of this woman with this man who I had never heard of, okay? So we're in this room, and she's having what seemed to me to be kind of a traumatic event 
kind of a, a psychotic break of sorts, and she's not aware of what's happening. She's weeping, and she's holding a child, and you can tell that she believes the child is dead, and I don't know what to do, and so Akiko's trying to guide me through this moment, and I know who she is, and I know I have to be here mm. with her, mm. and I know I have to figure out in the moment why it is I'm here and what it is I'm supposed to do here. Right. And it's going so roughly, and Akiko says something that whenever I hear it, I feel such gratitude. Akiko said, she has a very soft voice. She said, oh, she's been stuck here for a long time. Mm. So I just sat with her, you know. And eventually, Mm. Akiko helped me try to convey some sense of light into the space because it was so dark, you know, and to try to help her get a sense that the baby was not dead. And eventually, there was a knock at the door of this little shack. And I opened the door, and it was the man who I'd just gotten the census hit on who, years after I had found her on the census record, she married. Booker, and he opens the door and he hugged me, Mm -hmm. almost as if to say, thanks for holding it it till I got here. Yeah, right. So I say that to say when when I... So powerful, Casey. When I wrote that line, this is why we should stop explaining everything. When I wrote that line, I had no idea what it meant. I just knew it was true. And it took four years and a hell of a lot of work for you, to- for me to be available yep. for the understanding. Mm. So, and I know that I've only scratched the surface. Mm. So when I say we are ancestors' greatest hope, I don't mean they need us to go and be on Good Morning America because they were not represented in the media. Mm. That is such an impoverished vision Mm. of what this whole exercise is about. When I say we are ancestors' greatest hope, I mean that all throughout this galaxy and beyond, on many timelines, there are many versions of ourselves and those who have made us possible who are waiting for us to be available for some interaction that they need to get unstuck Mm. or they need to finish the story they were trying to tell or they need to, who knows? So that's what I know of what I mean Although what I know more is that I'll keep on knowing what there is to know about what I've said. Yes, yes. And what somebody means. Thank you for... Sorry for all that. I really didn't. No, no. Thank you for that powerful. It it is so powerful because so much is is also nonverbal and knowing and... When you're so separated from yourself, that ability to be able to even hear enough and trust yourself enough to be in that knowing space, I 
I look at you, Casey, and I just feel so much energy from you in a positive way because I can feel the you and the knowing of yourself that you are rooted and sitting in that. And that's very inspiring. Mm. It's why we're having this conversation tonight. You had a chance to listen to everyone that we talked to. We went from like divesting from perfectionism to like what to do when you're in that place where you're, you, you stopped running and now you're starting to feel. And now we're here with you saying like, sit in it, that inner self and trusting that inner voice. What is your takeaway for tonight after hearing everyone else? My takeaway is I'm so glad you all are alive. There's a great moment in another country, James Baldwin's novel, and the protagonist, spoiler, it commits suicide 100 pages into the book. It happens in New York, though that's a very Los Angeles kind of thing. And, and they have his funeral, and he was a Harlem Pentecostal, you know, and so it's a very difficult eulogy to give, and the minister gives this great sermon. He says, you know, they say a man that takes his own life on be buried in holy ground. I don't know nothing about that. All I know is all the ground God made is holy. And I'll tell you something else. I know a lot of people who took their own lives and they're walking the streets today. And some of them are preaching the gospel and some are sitting in the seats of the mighty. And if there weren't so many dead folks walking around, maybe those of us trying to live wouldn't have to suffer so bad. So you know, when I say I'm glad you all are alive, I mean that at a very deep level. So all I've heard tonight was people trying to figure out how to live yep. with a capital L, yep. how to be well, how to raise their children, how to love their partners, how to hear themselves, how to love that little version of themselves that was abandoned, that was ignored, that was neglected, that was punished for that mistake that led to that thing, or that worked so hard to make that thing really good and nobody paid attention, you know? That sounds like freedom to me. It's all good. It really is all good. So I heard people who have the great privilege you know, we all are living in a tradition. Every time I get mad, and I've been fighting all day with magazine people, and I just want to, you know, get on the next flight to New York and burn it all down, you know. But I'm always reminded that I'm working in a tradition where Frederick Douglass would be killed for writing. Yeah. Sonia Sanchez, many years later, was run out of homes and jobs for writing. writing. What, was, what we now, 50 years later, say is the truth. There's been such an enormous price that has been paid for us to sit here and cry openly <laughs> and make up things to say and yes. search for answers and hug each other and shake each other's hand and have clean water, you know. So that's the takeaway. The takeaway is that as Reverend Foster said further on in that eulogy, all that try, all who try must suffer. But yeah. the trying is still worth it. And Life so that's what I've heard. Life is suffering. Well, it's suffering in one way. 
But, you know, it's, I mean, I don't know. Is it really, is, is that really all there is? I, I don't think, think like so. Going back to, no, and that is not what I mean. Like going back to what Ayize said is like sitting in the hurt and feeling it and saying, this is part of life. It's all good. This is suffering is a part of life. Saying thank you. Yes. You say thank you because there's something in that moment of contrast. Yep. That... Because your soul can handle anything. I remember I was really f- trying to love this, and it was hard. My God. And I said, I told my therapist, I said, Robert, how much can I take of this? You know, I was just so outdone. And he said, well, you, your soul can take anything. The question is, how much can Casey take? <laughs> mm-hmm. So all we're trying to do, and that's why I love that Shroom's conversation. That's why I love this. That's why I love reconnecting with people a few years out at a time. Yeah. Because you see that we're all on this very interesting track where you, our soul, is way down the line. And Casey or Tanya or Steven or whomever, we're at the starting line and we're running and sometimes we give up and we sometimes say, go to hell. And, you know, but it's all waiting there. And so I I find that if we can reframe the pain, first off, if we can stop doing stupid stuff that we know is going to make us suffer, let's just Mm. put it, let's just be real about that. So, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But that aside, if we can put into context our unpleasant experiences as beautiful gifts that help us get closer to the life we've come to live, then that's where we can say it's all good. I'm not talking about toxic positivity. That's immature and and dangerous. I'm talking about a broader perspective on what this whole adventure is about. Man, I love you, Casey. I love you too. I really do. Yes. And now I kind of know what it means. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, congratulations, Casey. I'm happy for you. And can you give Casey a round of applause? Thank you. I want to thank LAist for having us tonight and for having me and opening up this space for me to be able to have these types of conversations with you. I also want to thank APM Studios and all of the folks that have worked alongside me, including all of the producers for Truth Be Told and many of my other endeavors. And I want to thank you, the audience. Again, it's tremendous to have folks say, we want to hear you talk. We want to hear what you think. it's 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 an honor. It is a truly an honor. A few years ago, I kept getting these Instagram ads for Factor Meals, and they looked pretty good, so I decided to give them a try. My schedule was absolutely bananas back then. I had no time to cook, and doing takeout several times a week felt like I was basically throwing money out of the window, and of course you know takeout is not healthy every day. So Factor Meals seem like a good option. They're fresh, never frozen. They take about two minutes to heat up. And what was great for me is that they taste like elevated home-cooked meals. Just one step above what I could do in my own kitchen. So I ate most of them for lunch. But Factor also offers breakfast, dinner, snacks, and smoothies that are all dietitian approved. And they're options if you're following keto or calorie smart or protein plus. Now, for you, our listener, Factor is offering you a chance to check them out. Head to factormeals.com slash Tanya50 and use code Tanya50 to get 50% off. That's code Tanya50, T 
T-O-N-Y-A 50 at Factormeals.com, Tanya 50, to get 50% off. So we're going to open it up to questions. And can we give Tanya a huge hand? Hi, I guess my question for each of the panelists is what can we do tomorrow to make your kingdom happen as soon as possible? Wow. What a question. Thank you. What's your name? Oh, I'm, my name is Andrea. Thank you, Andrea, for your question. Well, my account number is (laughs) (laughs) 8536. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, no, but really, you know, uh, I want to say something, and I don't mean it in any kind of way, any kind of nasty way at all. If my perspective is that if my kingdom or any of our kingdom, whatever that means, is real and is what we have been led to feel it is, then there's nothing you can do or not do to stop it. That's one of the more important things, I think, for us to gather. And it kind of takes the pressure off everybody. Mm. And it takes the pride off everybody, too. And so I would say that. And then I'd say you get real still in whatever it is in your home and you meditate and you, you know, have some conversations with the voice or voices inside of you. And you'll know exactly what to do. Thank you for that. Ayuse. I'm not in a rush. So it doesn't happen to happen tomorrow. I don't believe in royalty. I stay humble. I stay to the ground. I don't need a kingdom. I need community. Thank you. I think that one thing is really fun and good when we want to do things, because it's exciting that you get riled up, is in one's own community and thinking about one's own gift. So I can't necessarily tell you what to do because I don't know what your capacities are. But one thing that's helped me a lot when I'm feeling like I want to do something is to think about what gifts do I have to offer? Like what knowledge do I have? How can I sponsor someone? So I suggest that that. And then whenever you see someone, it could be someone you don't know out in these streets, you know, someone that you do know that you interact with. Say, how can I help you in this way? These are some skills that I have to offer. Do you need them? You know, and I think that's a really great way all of us in our communities can really build bridges. I would just say, listen to black women. Mm-hmm. Period. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you're here tonight because you do that, obviously. So that's a good thing. Keep keep listening to black women. I think I'm still building, so I can't say what I need for my own. But I'm thinking of, I'm referencing a friend who would often talk about should use lawns as a metaphor. And I think what's important is to cultivate your own lawn ethically and with morals and integrity. I love it. My name is Herman. I want to thank you for putting this panel together. But I came this evening primarily to ask you if you would elaborate on your, about your experience in Jamaica. I was so impressed with your conversation with, with, with Terry Gross. And then I started listening to your podcast, and I've been trying to figure out. 
I'm 76, I'm retired and I'm changing life and I'm trying to figure out what it's all about. Mm. And so when I heard you talk about your experience in Jamaica and meeting your grandmother and stuff, I said, oh, I have to talk to this lady. And so you said tonight it was a life-changing experience. And so if you wouldn't mind, just for me, forget the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> Just elaborate on that so I can go home and say, okay, this is where I'm going. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yes. Oh. Well, Herman, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and thank you so much for your question. You know, when I say that my trip in Jamaica was a life changing experience, I think a lot of what you heard tonight with the other panelists and the way that they're thinking about themselves and listening to themselves and learning different parts of themselves and just, just living. It's so profound to be given the gift of being able to see yourself clearly because it allows you, it allows me to understand my place in the world and my purpose. And it was also life-changing for me because I was able to have more compassion for the people around me. I went home to Detroit a few weeks ago for my grandmother's 97th birthday. And my entire family was there. And that was a big deal because there's been a lot of family dysfunction. And over the years, People have fallen off. There have been many times that I haven't seen people for many years, and then we come back together for big events, but it's always a little strained, and maybe there's a fight by somebody at the end. Somebody's going to act up. But we were all there for my grandmother, and we were all sitting there for three whole days. There wasn't a fight. There wasn't an argument, and there was an earnest try. But like by the third day, I was like, what is this? Wow. Like uh, there's everyone's like on this path. And then I realized it's really me. And I do think that obviously people came on their best behavior because to celebrate a 97 year old person's birthday is an amazing thing. But I also saw like my reactions to people, my sense of empathy had grown and I'd I was able to see all of them a, a lot clearer. I could see their pain. And so I had a lot more compassion. That was a great gift, and it's, that's the life-changing part of it. But the last thing I'll say about it is I'm gaining insights every day still. It happened a year ago, and right after it happened, I could like tell you all the things that were life-changing. And then six months later, you know, I'm, I'm seeing all of these other things. And then a year later, I'm still learning and I'm still learning about myself. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. But as Aize said, you know, if you're truly interested, the things that you're doing right now, asking questions, listening to people's stories, doing your own research, sitting with yourself and knowing yourself, whether you decide to ever take that journey or not, that is a wonderful exercise to take because you'll learn a lot more from, about something you didn't know and then you'll learn more about yourself. Thank you, Herman, for your question. Yes, we have a question up here. Thank you. 
My name is David. I so appreciate your, your comments on this panel tonight. One of the themes that I've been hearing as I've been listening to each of you is really comes around the, the concept of allowing. So, you know, allowing the perfectionism maybe not to run our lives. And Isaiah, I so appreciate what you said about taking your time. And uh, Casey, you, you just, you are in a rhythm that, I, that, uh, that is just fascinating to me. And I, I see so much value in, in your being. And so my wife and I, we run a business and there's a, there's a drivenness, you know, there's payroll due every two weeks and there's, you know, there's, there's goals and there's a drive there and there's a roar to that drive, but there's a cost to it too. And so as I'm listening to th these various themes tied together, the question that I would pose to you is how do we contend with the fact that as much as I would love to take my time, the external circumstances have an urgency to them. Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, there's, there's acknowledging that and kind of wanting to have it both ways. So that's my question. Thanks for your question. <clears throat> I believe that there is a cost to that expediency. And I wonder if you feel it in your body. All the time. Yeah. And I wonder how healthy that is. And I wonder when you think about your organization, your business, are you spreading, is it a healthy business? And not in the sense of, does it just make money, right? I hope, you look pretty successful. I'm hoping it's making money, right? <laughs> but do the people that you interact with, are, are they healthy, right? Are your interactions with your employees healthy, whole interactions? You know, this, this capitalist system is not designed to have people in mind, right? We are cogs. We are... We are what we do, not who we are, right? And what happens when we slow down and allow people to be fully human? Maybe it means more days off. Maybe it means more sick days. Maybe it means more days, more time thinking about something instead of doing something, right? I have to believe in my heart of hearts that there is a way to have healthy community and good business. And... I'm not a businessman, right? I don't know all the models, and maybe the model's not out there yet, but wouldn't that be a good project, right? Like, maybe that's where, maybe that's your work, right? How do we make this business as healthy as we can make it, as well as profitable? And if it's a cost, if it's a choice between being more profitable and less healthy, right, then you get to make that decision. Thank you. Thank you Can for your I add one real quick thing on that? Because I, 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 we got to spend some time together because I want to get on your program from where I am as a Capricorn. And I'm a Libra, so yeah. There you go. Okay, yeah. I love Libras. There we go. I see it somewhat differently. Not differently. I see it. I contend with it. I like that word. I contend with it in some other ways in my life. And it kind of gets to this conversation we had earlier about perfectionism. I don't ever want to let go of the standard of excellence that was, that was inculcated in me by the poor and working class black women who raised me, who made me stand in their parlor until I could speak without stumbling over my words. <laughs> and it wasn't because they wanted me to be white. We had no interest in being white. And so I think the question for me is one, why is it that you're being driven 
to be perfect or to win this thing. There are some things that I want to absolutely crush because I am consumed by making it great. Tanya is consumed. All of us here, you know, we're con there is something that is worth being consumed, even if it's just loving your child. That's, that's all good. And so I've come to think of life not as a marathon or a sprint, but sometimes it's a series of sprints with some breaks, and that's okay. I've been writing a book called The Great Refusal, and it was sparked by Simone Biles' withdrawal from the Olympics in 2021. Now, everybody, if you just stop the story there, you say, wow, she really quit. How in the hell does she do something like that? Well, no, actually, she reconstituted herself, which mm -hmm. we all must do. And she came back a different person and she still is lethal and she still is going to win. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be either or. But I think what I love about where you go with it is it pulls us out of where we've been conditioned to be all the time. And that's really helpful for me. Thank you for your question. Thank you. Hello, my name is Joanne. I just dropped my phone. This is incredible. Like, just thank you. A question that I had was around children. So this is really kind of like for the parents and aunties, uncles amongst you. How do we help our kids be free? Love that question. Thank you, Joanne. We were just talking about that earlier. Nancy or Jamila? Yeah. Wow, it's a struggle. And I've always said that I'm striving to raise a free black child, that I want her to feel free in her body and free in the world as much as possible, you know. I think the best thing you can try to do is to pour into them and give them the confidence to be free, you know, make them feel good about themselves. Tell them that they're worthy. Tell them that they're beautiful. Tell them that they're smart. Tell them that they're capable. You know, bolster their self-esteem as much as you possibly can so they don't feel encumbered by the idea of inherent mediocrity, you know, or inherent deficiency, that they feel like they're capable of things. Yes. <sighs> I grapple with this a lot. And until, again, the last 18 months, I was just on autopilot. And freedom wasn't really a part of my language. It was, I, I wasn't even thinking about it as a binary, free or unfree. It was just like, successful or not successful. And the last 18 months, I've had to do a lot of reflection and a lot of looking back in my family history and talking to my mother a lot. When the, one of the benefits of living in a hospital for four months with, in one room, she get to talk a lot. And you cherish that talking because that is a whole lot better than when they're not talking. And so you talk as much as you can and, and everything becomes such a sponge and you're listening for the first time, well I was for the first time in my life, like actually listening to what my mom was saying. And I would talk to her about how she met my father. And I've heard the story a million times, but I never really listened to it until this year. And she was a first grade school teacher in rural Virginia in the 60s in a segregated school in the town that she grew up in. And she loved it. And she was 28. At that time, that was like, oh, <laughs> you may as well be like 50. And so all of her friends had like teenagers, you know, and so, and she just, just the right person just never came along. And one day she was just in the street and this man just shot up to her and he said, are you Amanda? I've been trying to meet you. And they go out on one date. And on that one date, you know, he grew up extraordinarily impoverished and he had the bravado of someone who had a goal. And he says, you know, I'm going to be a millionaire. 
and I'm going to make you a stay-at-home woman, and I'm going to make enough money to insulate our children from racism. And my mom was like, sold. I don't care. <laughs> and like, I don't care like, what it is. And he went after the school, and he accomplished it on a technical level. You know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and he did all this incredible stuff. But to the point where, by ironically, the time that I was in when he became 40, he was so exhausted, he was so broken, that my mom was very worried. She, she loved him. She didn't love the stuff, she loved him, but we didn't have the language in the 80s. And he was always working, always working, always gone. She would go on trips with her family, and there was a trip that she had planned, and at the last minute, it was, you know, it was cars back then, like you had a car, you had your stuff in it, it was packed, she had it down to the T. He decided he didn't want to work. And he wanted to come on the trip. And this was very weird for him. And so my mom was like, but there's, there's no space. I don't, I don't know how you'd fit in. And he just said, he's like, I haven't enjoyed anything. I don't get to enjoy any of this. And at the time, my mom didn't think about it. But over the next few months, things got a little more complicated. And my mom and people who loved him suggested he go to a psychiatrist. And in the 80s, that is anathema. I mean, you, this is like, it's, yeah. you have to understand, for a black man who is at the top of his game, to suggest one goes to a psychiatrist, it could not be worse. So on the day he was supposed to go, instead, he chose to die by suicide. Mm. So my entire family was upended. And a person who had the most loftiest of goals to, to reach for freedom for his family and who accomplished them on a technical level never got to fully enjoy them. I did not really understand any of this until this year. Welcome to my journey. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the hospital, and my mother, who, she was a stay-at-home mom, and then she had to bring the business back, and she's sitting here sick, and she's just like, you know, I remember burying your father, and then, the, you know, having a Sunday, and then the next day going to the bank. And I am this little black woman, it's a whole bunch of white men. <laughs> They're like, where's our money? <laughs> She's just like, oh, my God. And she made it happen without even breaking a sweat. And when I think about with my children, fast forward, right, because now I'm a mom. Now I realize, oh, my God, there's a whole lot to this parenting game. Because she's always just like, I love doing it. It's what, I, it's what I did for you. It's what I did for you. And I was free. I had a very free childhood. <laughs> the, only, the only responsibility for me was to be excellent. And is that freedom? Who knows, right? So I had the burden, unbeknownst to me, subconsciously, to take advantage of all of the freedom that so many people had literally and theoretically died and lost their lives for. So when I look at my kids, now that I have this awareness, before a tragedy, you know, I'm very lucky my mom survived. I survived, barely. <laughs> I get to kind of have what my ancestors have not had which is an opportunity to say, hold the phone, let's actually unpack all this. So when we're talking about how do we raise children to be free, again, it's back to what I said about how well do you want to know me? How well do I want to know myself? And how well do you want to actually know me? Which is why a year and a half ago, had she called me and asked me for this panel, I think, oh my gosh, yes, let's talk about the importance of like just getting it all together yeah. and going after our goals and teamwork, making the dream work. She was like, I was, I was just like, I'm tired of being perfect. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I suggest that all of us before it's too late, really look at the things in our lives, in our family's lives, make those amends, just come to terms with what's important to you. 
and give it your best to work on it because this is your chance, this is why you're here, because you're curious. You really wanna know how to figure it out. And it starts with this, and it starts with listening, it starts with asking questions, growing the mushrooms, growing the relationships, <laughs> listening to black women, yes. supporting all kinds of media, and, and, and just being open and honest. Thank you for that, and thank you so much for sharing about your mom. I think we have time for one more question. Oh, hi, Brandon. <laughs> yes. Casey and I went to college together and haven't seen each other in of maybe 15 years, which is wild. But oh anyway, my God. I, as you know, Tanya, have had a long history with psychedelics recreationally and therapeutically. I'm now framing it that way. But I did my first like guided psilocybin journey a couple months ago, and it was a like deeply transformative foundational experience, especially around sort of racial trauma and that. And there's a lot to sort of say there, but what I, one of the things I came out with, and this was partially in response to the season of truth be told was how do we proliferate the benefits of psychedelics for black people without falling into the capitalist sort of constraints of like, centers and the medical industrial complex. And I just, I don't see the, I want, I want to know more about what that path might look like from our friends. Thank you, Brandon. This one was made for me. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't say Jack about the kids, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes, you bring up an excellent point. I am so fortunate that I run with the crew in Oakland of black therapists, black spiritual leaders, black business people, black growers who are all involved in the psychedelic movement. And as a therapist myself, as a theologian myself, what I can say is there is a fundamental difference between doing this work in a clinical, a.k.a. white setting and around all black people. Can I swear? Go for go go for it. The shit just hits different. <laughs> it's just different, right? And so I like to think of and I know people have have church damage and and that's fine, but I like to think of the church model, right? So like you, you know, right now it's like, you're the patient. I am the therapist. I'm, you're going to lay down on a coach, couch. I say it's the position of death, actually. You're laying down on a couch. They put a blindfold on you. They play some weird classical music. They give you a certain dosage. They ask you about your mother. You start crying. You start wanting to, you know, throw up. And then, right, it's this, it's this medical model. You are sick, right? And you must be cured, right? I'm going to tell a story. You get a bunch of black people together. And even a bunch of black queer people together. I'm sorry. Okay, so there was one time, there were some people, myself included, that were in a psychedelic space together, and folks were like, were, were feeling this, like, you know, like one person was like, oh, I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm feeling like I, I got, I got baggage. I've got so much baggage. And I'm like, okay, like, let's, let's tell them, I got, I feel like I got baggage in my trunk. And I'm like, you mean like, like on your body or, or metaphysical? She's like, no, I have trash in my trunk. <laughs> in the trunk of my car <laughs> is my ex's stuff. 
that I have been carrying around for nine months mm -hmm. trying, like, trying to get it back to them. Mm. And we were like, you've been carrying this around for nine months? Yeah. They don't, hey, you know what we're gonna do right now? We're gonna throw that stuff away. <laughs> I don't mean metaphorically. I mean, we opened the trunk, we got some garbage bags, we took that stuff and we threw it away. You can't do that in a clinical setting. Yes. You can't do it in a clinical setting, right? And we're sitting there, and there's some of us, I'm, I have to say I'm the oldest person in this whole thing. I'm tripping out about that, but I'm gonna let it go. But, you know, me and one other older folks, we're, we're talking about it, and we're like, this, this space, this feels so familiar to us, this psychedelic space, what is this? And I was like, you know what? This is the club. This is what the club was to us. It was a place where we altered our consciousness and we moved. Mm. And we felt each other. And I put on George Michael's Freedom. And for those of you that were not in New York, when George Michael's Freedom came on, let me tell you something. Everybody came out yeah. when George Michael's Freedom. If you were the straightest person in the world, you came out <laughs> when George Michael's Freedom came on. And we put that on, and it was like, Oh, yes, this is familiar. And so the thing I want to say is that this plant medicine, the psychedelics, whatever you want to call it, it is not new to us. This, it is us. We have systems for dealing with this and being with this, but we have been told that we are, we are not supposed to do it. We are told that it is savage. We are told that it is heathenistic. It is told that, like, you know, only, you know, you can only do it in the jungle. Right, you can only do it in Africa. You can only do it in. The, but we, but this, this striving to alter our consciousness and to form connection and to move our bodies and to feel freedom, mm -hmm. we have been doing this because this is us. So I like the church model, which says, you come, and sometimes you're going to take the medicine. Sometimes you're going to hold space for other people. Sometimes you're going to cook. Sometimes you can prepare people for the journey. Sometimes you can prepare the medicine, right? You're involved no matter what. But it's not that capitalistic, here's the money, here's the thing, I take it, boom, boom, I feel better, that's the end of it. It's in community, right? And so, and, and I will tell you, there's a documentary, A Table of Our Own, a tableofourown.org. You can see what happens when people, when black people in community who know about medicine are together. I'll tell you something. We are the medicine. Aize Jama Everett, Stephen Canals, Jamila Lemieux, Nancy Red, and Casey Gerald. Thank you so much for spending this evening with me and with us. And thank you to the audience. Have a good night. Yeah.